I'm Kane Jackson, and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? My name's Kane Jackson, and I'm the host of Chasing Financial Equality. This first episode of the show is an unusual one. It wasn't ever meant to be a podcast at all. We made it as a way to share what Maslow, our social impact business, was doing with our investors and supporters. We recorded an interview where we spoke about the problems of the finance industry and how we plan to solve them. After posting it, thought leaders and famous people from all around the world started reaching out to be on the show, and so we thought we'd better make one. This episode is quite informative and many people have said they enjoy it the most, but it's fairly low rent and it's targeted at a specific audience. The subsequent episodes of Chasing Financial Equality are where you'll hear a professionally produced show for a broad audience and where you'll hear from some of the world's greatest minds on some of the world's greatest problems and the solutions that we need to act on as a society if we're to ensure a happy life on earth is possible for generations to come. Hi everyone, I'm JP Monk, banker and academic. I'm here today talking to Kane Jackson, who is described as the bad boy of Australian fintech. He's written for numerous publications, including the ASX-listed Market Herald. He's passionate about improving society through financial services and responsible lending. In particular, he's looking at ways to contribute to the industry and to disrupt it for the betterment of our society. So we're going to have a conversation about what that might look like and how we might go about that. How did you stumble into finance, Kane? I had an unusual path to finance. I trained and, and qualified as a, as a paramedic. One of the issues I experienced was about 50% of the patients that we saw were experiencing issues that were appearing or manifesting as medical issues, but really they were having wealth inequality or poverty issues that led to medical issues later on. The work I was doing felt like a band-aid. I wanted to go a little bit more upstream. And so about eight years ago is when I first got into fintech, trying to investigate how we might go about solving some of the problems that lead to those issues from a socioeconomic perspective. Yeah, cool. It's a really interesting dynamic in terms of seeing a lot of those issues that manifest as socio-cultural or economic problems going all the way back to a root cause about financial empowerment. Were there any particular vignettes that drew you to that insight or that conclusion? Part of my studies, I focused on healthcare policy for preventative medicine. And a common denominator in preventative medicines is access. And access is determined in our economy by money. Do you have the money to buy the access to certain healthcare? If you have a slight health concern, if you have enough money, you can go and get that sorted before it evolves into something more serious. When you don't have that money, you can't get that taxi to go and get your sore ankle checked out. It snowballs. There's all sorts of correlations between people who are more sedentary in their lifestyle, don't have gym memberships because they can't afford them. They buy cheaper food because higher quality food costs too much. So often we went to patients and the problem they were experiencing was not originally a medical problem. Mm. It was a socioeconomic problem. And that comes down to not having enough money, enough education, enough access, and also being a product of an industry that charges those who have the least the most to access financial products. And that was something that I saw quite a lot of, and it became this recurring theme that I couldn't look past anymore. Yeah, right. I mean, that's interesting as well, the holistic sort of perspective or outlook on it. I guess that's how we got to chatting. 
Yeah, which is why you're interviewing me today. We had probably one of the best chats I've ever had about Maslow to start with. The journey of understanding Maslow can be a long one sometimes. Our customers understand what we're doing really quickly, but people who have a grasp of the industry take a lot longer to understand because they want to get technical. After I met you, I asked you if you could provide a quote about Maslow, what would that be? You said Maslow could genuinely solve the inevitable cataclysmic conflicts that threaten both democracy and capitalism. And that's why I wanted to sit down with you and have a conversation because it's not every day that people see the magnitude of our potential impact and obviously the importance of our mission. Always good to jump from an existential attention grabbing statement, but that's a good segue into understanding why Maslow exists and what is it trying to respond to? There's a lot of macro phenomenon that are all colliding at the moment. We're seeing a cultural shift towards more sustainable policies, more sustainable environmental decisions. But also we're having conversations on a much larger scale now than we ever have before around the fact that society, certainly in the Western world, is arriving at the later stages of capitalism. The rhetoric around that is really interesting. There is a lot of correlation between sustainability and environmental policies and sustainability and economic policies when it comes to who late stage capitalism benefits and who it disadvantages. And if we have a look at the major beneficiaries of late stage capitalism, you've got the wealthy and then a much larger component or the majority of us that as capitalism evolves, it's more and more benefiting people that sit at that top part. Just last week, there was a report out that wealth inequality in Australia is at 70 year highs. That report was really interesting. I mean, it's nothing new for us. I saw that when I was on road training as a paramedic almost 10 years ago. So often you see these huge gaps, but that report came out with some shocking stats. Comparing the poorest 20% of households to the richest finds that the low income households are seven times more likely to experience homelessness and unemployment, four times more likely to be unable to meet rent or mortgage payments, three times more likely to be victims of crime, nine times more likely to be an unpaid carer, five times more likely to suffer psychological distress. The report found that 26% of all women are in the poorest 20% of households, mm. just 12% in the top 20%. That's a shocking example of the wealth inequality that exists in Australia. And that's not even looking at minority groups, members of the queer community. You've got that first Australian people who are wildly more affected by wealth inequality than people who don't experience life the way they do. It also highlighted that the percentage of GDP that company profits contribute to has doubled since 1970 from 16% to 31%. And obviously a majority of company profits go to the wealthiest 20% of households because they own more shares than the poorest. Yeah, right. So there's some shocking statistics in many respects. What do you think are the biggest contributors to wealth inequality and the drivers to bring it to where it is today? If we have a look at the issues, they all come down to money. Not having it, not understanding it, being disadvantaged by it. There's not a lot of people that look to address the root causes of the money industry and what it contributes to wealth inequality for those people. We have a lot of people in financial literacy, financial well-being. One of the issues we don't look at is what are the contributing factors to that wealth inequality? Let's break them down and actually have conversations, not just about how are people disadvantaged by their lack of financial literacy, but what is the role of the industry? What is the industry doing to contribute or otherwise to wealth inequality? And if we have a look at other macro pressures around wealth inequality, we've got things like inflation. Now, as we know, inflation benefits people who hold real assets. So people who own the property are not as affected by inflation as people who don't own property, for example. It's really interesting that the finance industry is owned by about 1% or 2% of the world, but it services 78% of all humanity. We have this industry that is the largest industry on earth. It's trebled in size since 1983. It was 8.3% of GDP in 1983. It now contributes 25% of GDP globally, by far the largest industry. 
And there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that freefall growth in the industry has actually grown the broader economy. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it extracts rent from the economy. And essentially, we've got this thunderstorm of horrible influences, inflation. We've got this industry that contributes the same problems to people that inflation does. Its beneficiaries are one or two percent going the majority of the shares in these companies. There's an uphill flow of capital, of profits to those people. And we look at the growing contribution of company profits to GDP. It's doubled since the 1970s. If I put on my Scrooge McDuck hat and say wealth inequality, so what? I'm getting richer and so what if everyone else gets poorer? What do you think happens if nothing changes about the trend, whether it's inflation or other drivers of that? Yeah, look, phenomenon? I think we're seeing symptoms of that already happening. If we have a look at the growing polarization or extreme views that are proliferating society, both in reality, but also online where that starts, we're seeing a lot of discontent. If you have a look at some of the movements that have grown over the last two decades, we had the Occupy Wall Street movements, which were all about the 1%. And that came from the bailouts of the GFC that essentially benefited the top end of town and had everyone else pay for that. And that's morphed into all sorts of protests around, hey, we as a population, we as a people are not particularly happy with the status quo. And the status quo tends to focus on we're having a hard time. And the majority of people, especially at the moment, are having a very hard time with inflationary pressures. And there's lots of conversation about that at the moment, but there's not a lot of conversation about the role the financial industry plays in that. And it just so happens that it contributes the same kinds of problems. It's a hard one to discuss because people get a little bit hot under the collar when you start talking about capitalism. People start saying it's the best of a bad bunch of systems. And there's lots of arguments for and against. I'm actually, I'm a staunch capitalist, but I believe there should be limits mm. to capitalism. And if you have a look at financial services, one of the unique features of the industry is it's not just an industry. It's one of the only industries in the world that is also a system. And if we have a look at that system, it connects more people on earth than any other system. It is the, the access point to the global economy. Mm. And so you've got this industry that overlays this system. And the system is money but it's gatekept by the financial services industry. Sure. I think it's really important to have a conversation about what that means. Mm. So if we have a look at the industry itself and the way that it's built, what is the bedrock of financial services? How does it make its money? Does that benefit its customer more or less than its shareholder? If we have a look at the way most retail financial services, those that everyday Australians interact with and buy, if you have a look at the way they're sold, the companies selling them get paid when the decision is made by the customer to buy that product. So you've got this industry of content and advice that's basically marketing. Yeah. A whole bunch of companies all pretty much selling the same version of a white labeled product to a bunch of people that don't understand what they're buying because no one reads an 80 page document. And they're incentivized to sell that product to that customer, knowing full well that they're not gonna read that document. And so you've got this industry that's incentivized to make money in a way that is counter to the outcomes of a customer. There are a number of unique elements of financial services. And one of them is it's a system as well as an industry. But another is that every financial service is selling money. Right. A loan sells money now and you pay more for it to get it now. Insurance sells less expense later on. Investing sells more money later for a fee. Mm. Every single product that is governed by a product disclosure statement is selling us money. And that's what we pay for. You've got an industry that has shareholders and 
The shareholders want the same thing the customers want. The product is money and the shareholders want return, which is money. It's the only industry where to give one to a shareholder, you have to take it directly from the customer. Mm. And that's a really interesting dynamic. And we're not talking about that in the open. And it's something that people want to throw us into this basket of saying, well, oh, you're anti-capitalist. No, but we need to understand that if we're going to put an industry for profit and overlay that to a system that is a utility, we need to discuss the impact of that utility in that industry. That's a really interesting perception as well. To what extent do you think elements of financial services, whether they be banking or insurance or in fact superannuation or other investment mechanisms, how do you draw the distinction between what a utility is and then where does it become a luxury or something that's worth having brand and competition and so forth? A great number of financial services are not luxuries. You know, we have to insure our car, we have to insure our house. Not many people can afford the black swan events that insurance covers. We all need to bank. We all need to put our money, our wages into a bank account, know they're safe. The issue you have is banking's a fairly easy one. It's face value. You can look at it and see what you get. You know what you pay and you go, yep, fair call. Insurance, investment products, superannuation get a lot more complex. And so you have a look at insurance as an example. We all need insurance. but. Very few people will read the rules of the policy in the product disclosure statement. And, mm. you know, it might be 80 pages. And one of the things that the competitive pressures of the industry mean is that insurance companies all have to compete on price because yeah. that's the first thing a customer will compare. They'll go, okay, well, RACV is X and AAMI is Y. I'll go the cheaper option. But what not many people do is go that next step further and say, well, hang on a minute. For RACV and AMI to both give their shareholders money in return, they have to take it from me as a customer. So how might they do that? Well, in the PDS, it might be that they start carving things out. So you've got all these competitive pressures because shareholders want to return and that's fair enough. And so you've got all of these insurance companies and all of these financial service companies that are all under pressure from their shareholders to increase profits. If you're a company and you know that you can change a term in a document that not many people read. And that means that you have to pay out less benefit based on predetermined circumstances. The incentive is for you to do that and for you to market otherwise. And so you've got this product that we all need, it's not a luxury, being marketed to us through 30 second ads on TV or radio, some guy driving a convertible, and that might be how they sell us insurance. It doesn't address that the reason that insurance product might be cheaper is because it doesn't cover certain things that you would expect coverage for. Mm. And comparing these things becomes really hard. Right. So you've touched on a really important aspect. These products are not homogenous. And in basic microeconomics, we think, okay, fair market, you compete on price and who's got a better quality machine in terms of delivering that product. But if in fact you're buying a substandard or a product that doesn't have the same qualities as its competitor, then you're comparing two different things. So that means your, your substitution and trying to prioritize with your finite resources is a challenge. And you're saying the consumer is gonna struggle. And you've also touched on a power imbalance between the consumer and the supplier in legally, what are they buying exactly? The power imbalance is one of the key characteristics that makes the lack of understanding or the opaqueness around what you're buying really problematic. There's a couple of interesting examples I use to explain this. Uh, I talk about 7-Eleven coffee. You know, if there's a 7-Eleven and a cafe and you go into the 7-Eleven and you buy $1 coffee versus the $4 coffee next door, you know next door you're gonna get a better quality, you're gonna get a more personalized experience. You can compare those two things and any layperson can make an informed decision about what is best for them. 
if 7-Eleven decides they want to make more money on their coffee, they can put it up to $2.50. If you're comparing a $2.50 coffee from 7-Eleven versus a $4 coffee next door, it becomes an easier decision to get the $4 one or say, well, oh, no, it's not worth that product. And all of a sudden, 7-Eleven would see a drop off in their sales because they're trying to sell something they haven't established value for. Right. Next door, same thing. If they want to improve the price of their coffee, they have to improve the value. And that's how competitive pressures play out. You can't do that with financial products. You can't compare two financial products side by side without reading the 80-page document. This is an industry that sells a really complex document to people that don't understand it. And if we have a look at how people try and counter that, we see them landing in places like comparison sites. Yeah, Comparison sites are a business like all others. They wanna make money. They're essentially a content factory, produces content that provides leads. Those leads will lead someone to their website to compare a product. And those comparison products are there for a whole bunch of different companies. Not all the companies, just the companies that have chosen to feature on that site. And they've chosen that based on how much they pay the site per click, per lead. But if you have a look at something like Carloan, for example, that company might be paying the comparison site $60 a click. That means they put them at the top of the page. And so that's the one you're going to see first. You're not going to see all the other ones. And so it's not a true comparison. There are very few true comparisons because to really compare the products, you've got to break down the product disclosure statements and you've got to compare them side by side. It's not always as easy as a column with a tick and a cross. Right. That's one of the biggest difficulties. There's no place at the moment to say, well, hang on a minute, how do I know if this is the best product? And that comes down to the fact that these companies are incentivized to hide things. That also exacerbates that power imbalance between the choices because if a consumer can't inform themselves, where do they turn? How can they solve for this? We're starting to see some really interesting marketing play out. Amy has started advertising across billboards that they pay out 99% of their claims. There's an insurance company advertising that they're doing what you pay them to do. That's reflective of the fact that there are insurance companies out there who are signing up customers using flashy marketing, presenting as if they've got this product that will cover them in these situations. And I mean, when you make a claim on your insurance, you're in a pretty shitty situation. You know, something bad has happened. You're stressed or all these things. And that's the time at which you find out that the insurance that you bought expecting it would be a certain thing is not. And they've carved out certain coverage or certain benefits in the product disclosure statement. We're seeing that a lot in insurance carving out more and more to keep their profit margins the same and keep their shareholders happy. Mm. And customers can't appraise that when they buy the products. One of the insurance companies did a marketing campaign about the insurance company you wanted when you needed to claim. Should be a fair assumption that your insurance company is going to be there for you when Mm. the thing that you've paid them for happens. And a lot of the time it's not. There's regulation for these things. I mean, sometimes that's a complex web as well, but consumer protection, is that going to help? We have this understanding that a retail customer, which is the everyday Australian, has the least information and is least informed. Mm. Because of that, they are owed the highest duty of disclosure. We have legislation that defines what they must disclose as a company. That's why it's an 80-page product disclosure statement because let the buyer beware doesn't hold water when you're selling this complex product to a customer that doesn't know how to beware. Regulation tries to balance this duty of disclosure that we have to this customer. And we have that duty of disclosure because there is a misaligned incentive. The industry is incentivized to profit by giving the customer less. The tool for them to do that is a document no one reads. Right. So of course they do that. And that is what led to the Banking Royal Commission and fees for no service. And all of the problems we've seen in financial services, it comes from that misalignment of interest. The regulator's job is to make sure the interests of the customer are protected or looked after. They've got a hard uphill battle because the model of the industry 
is the opposite. It incentivizes the company to undermine customer outcome. And until you change that foundation of the industry, the model itself, the regulator's always gonna be playing catch up and people are always gonna be disappointed with the product. What about financial education? I actually had a really interesting conversation once upon a time with a guy by the name of Michael Joyce. Michael runs the financial inclusion program for the Good Shepherd Foundation. And we had a chat about financial literacy and financial wellbeing and education itself. And he said, we don't so much need financial literacy programs, we need consumer literacy. And that was a really interesting conversation. And it led us to delve deeper into what does the consumer really need to know about? What does an everyday person need to know about? And one of the things they need to know about when it comes to financial services is this misalignment of incentive. One of the things financial literacy doesn't tackle is that fact. They don't say, hey, these products are going to make more money for the company if they give you less benefit. Right. So that's something you should go into these things understanding, especially in Australia. We're an incredibly well-educated country. And a lot of arguments are made that financial literacy is basic maths. Most people understand that if you make a decision sooner, it's the best time to make it than later. Mm. And you have to take a proactive view with your financial well-being. It doesn't cover some of the most problematic areas of financial services. Yeah. So that brings us to Maslow. What is Maslow? <laughs> We're an early stage venture. We're pre-product. We're all things money. You can bank with us. You can buy insurance from us. You can invest with us, you can get information from us. We change the business model through which financial services are sold to everyday Australia. At the moment, there's that misalignment of incentive. We align incentives. So we will have a full service platform where you can choose all of the financial products you need for wherever you're at in life. You can buy all of these products and you will know that we never make profit from the products. Much like Costco, where you pay to get in the door and all of the products are bought to you at cost price or near cost price in Costco's case, we have a policy of never making a profit from your decision. And at the moment, the industry is incentivized to influence your decisions. And that's why advice varies so much depending on the source you get it from. We're incentivized to give you the best outcome. You pay an entry fee and that comes in the form of a subscription. It might be $10 a month and you might have banking with us. You might have an insurance product you might have a lending product, but they'll all be bought to our customers at cost price. And you pay to know that our incentives are always aligned with you because we never have any motivation whatsoever to undermine a product, to hide something in the product disclosure statement because our shareholders will only make money if our customers get better outcomes and those better outcomes are translated in people saying, oh yeah, absolutely, the $10 a month is worth it. Right, so it's serving the distribution need to the customer without that conflict of interest between yeah. salesperson and the yeah, user. Yeah, ab absolutely. Coming back to what we spoke about before, the power imbalance. When Maslow go about choosing a product, we know what we're looking for. Our insurance experts choose an insurance product. They're negotiating with people who understand insurance products. And so when we bring that to the platform, We've already done the part of choosing the product based on what we think will be your best outcomes. And you know we're not incentivized to hide anything in the details. And so you pay your monthly fee for us to go and choose the best products. Mm. They're cheaper because we don't add a margin. But also you know that we're not carving things out because there's no benefit to us whatsoever. We are a safe place to navigate money. And there is no safe place at the moment. And just going back a bit, you mentioned as well Maslow's shareholders. So what kind of people are they? Capitalists, socialists, champagne socialists? <laughs> there's a lot of people that are saying our model is incredibly transformative to the industry. And there's no point hiding the fact there's an enormous amount of money in a company coming in and rebuilding an entire industry, especially when that industry is the largest industry on earth. And one of the things we want to do with Maslow was to solve the problem 
that financial services has created. And that is this wealth transfer from people who can't really afford it to people who get the benefit. And people identified that if we succeed, we'll make quite a lot of money. And so we made a decision very early on that we would be a limited profit company. So first and foremost, we want to exit to our customers. There's a number of companies that are starting to do this and they're usually run by people that care about the world and wanting to make it a slightly better place than they found it. And, you know, that's reflected in our founding team as well. We're a pretty diverse bunch and not from financial services, which helps. So on day one, when we launch, we're giving 5% of the company to our customers. And our investors, we have to sell shares to raise capital to fund the growth of the business. They have a cap on their returns and it varies depending on what stage of the business they come in. But eventually, once we pay out dividends over the life of the business and return their capital with a profit margin, they're actually forced to transfer their equity into the customer pool. Mm. Eventually, Maslow will be almost entirely owned by customers. We're building a new industry of financial services that advocates for and serves a billion people and then will gift it to them. It becomes a really interesting conversation around making products cheaper, building products with intentions and motivations that are purely to serve the interests of customers, not shareholders. Right. A million people is a pretty audacious sort of target. What's the strategy to achieve this? If you have a look at fintech and financial services as a whole, acquiring a customer is very expensive. Yes. If you think about why, that's because we're selling a complex product to a very saturated market. There's a lot of companies who are all marketing at the same time using the same mediums. So that drives up the cost of that media, saturation in the market of information. And so it becomes harder and harder for companies to acquire a customer. Our customer ownership, our limit on profit for shareholders and the alignment with our customers is a really crucial part of how we will acquire customers over time. We're fortunate enough to be able to have a look at some really good case studies of success in Australia. And one of them is UpBank. What UpBank achieved was nothing short of phenomenal. And, you know, last time I looked, they were sitting around the half a million active customers. Obviously, that's now been sold to Bendigo Bank and was probably always a funnel into mortgage products. But if you look at the way UpBank communicated with those customers to acquire them, it's much the same way we will communicate with our customers. But whereas UpBank gave you a cool design, a wonderful UX, UI, we go the next step and we say, this is yours. We're building this for you. It benefits you. The incentives are for you. Whereas UpBank's incentives, they didn't change. They're the same as every other bank. And that was to make money off selling lending products, which they're starting to do. And they haven't changed the fundamental business model. Because we do that, we think we'll speak to a generation who cares about sustainability, who cares about having a say in things and bring down our cost of acquisition. Yeah, right. Sounds similar to the bank assurance model that was attempted, which ultimately created the Banking Royal Commission in Australia. Why do you think that happened and how do you think this will go differently? Because we changed the motivations and the incentives mm -hmm. of the industry and that's something that hasn't been done. Everything that has been done that doesn't change that is essentially a band-aid. We look to go to the root of the problem and say, hang on a minute, we can't give people what they want and that is an advocate. People want to pay a fee to feel safe. Well, how do you provide them safety that is authentic if your business model is to undermine them when they're not looking. Mm. I suppose having seen over the last economic cycle in Australia, which you could argue has been 35 years or so, we've seen 
the convergence of many financial services into single suppliers and manufacturers and distributors and so forth, but wrought with the various conflicts that come from distributing that, either through a traditional branch network, the, the evolution of the digital channels, the involvement of brokers, and I suppose, particularly in Australia, viewing the broker as a trusted third party, notwithstanding that they're remunerated by distributors and manufacturers of those products. Then the breaking up almost of that industry somewhat voluntarily by the realization that, gee, it's pretty hard to comply with all this at the same time and to avoid those conflicts. So it seems like we're better off selling that to someone else so that it's genuinely an arm's length transaction. This model turns it on its head somewhat and you're saying to your Costco analogy, I'm going to just stack everything up on pallets over there. People come in and buy what they want and they come here because they value being able to pick from those curated product sets that that the typical retail customer is going to draw some benefit from, which justifies the value that they pay to you. So that sounds like a pretty interesting alternative. And certainly sounds like there's a lot of interest from the investor side as to how that might fare differently. But it sounds like you're onto something pretty cool. This industry does a lot of virtue signaling or just signaling where it's, I'm looking after your interests, you can trust us. That's one of the things we want to build into our model is inherent trust. We should never have to market or say to someone, we're looking out for your interests. You should see that in the way that Maslow is owned. We report our financials to every single person who uses the platform, not just our shareholders, the way we exit to our community. And I would like to say one day, gone are the days of saying you care about the interests of your customer when the way you make money says otherwise. That's what's most important to us. It's the thing that upsets us most about the industry is a bunch of really well-informed, really well-educated people telling people who don't understand the product that they're being sold that it's in their best interest. Certainly the way that the world's going, I think we can safely say it's fair to call time on that kind of disingenuous approach. Yeah, right. You wouldn't have to say it if it spoke for itself. That's so. the plan. Well, thanks very much, Kane, for your time. Thanks, and, uh, Great to hear about Meslow. And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality one of humanity's greatest threats today.